Hi, thanks for joining us for this message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. We pray that you're blessed by it. If you'd like to know more about Red Church or its ministries, or if you'd like to support us financially, you can find out more by heading to connect.redchurch.org.au. To start, if you've got your Bibles, we're going to turn to John chapter 18 and reading through to chapter 19. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanliness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked. Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priest handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of the world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? rebuked Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail King of the Jews! And they slapped him in the face. One more time, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests saw their, and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. He went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. 
Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on a judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the first day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. Now, forgive me for skipping ahead. This isn't the traditional scripture that you'd hear on Palm Sunday. Usually we'd think about him entering Jerusalem as a king, the crowd shouting, Hosanna, here he is. Hosanna in the highest. Welcome to our king. But today I want to focus on his trial. We kind of tend to cruise through it between all the other stories. Easter's got so much going on with the narrative. It's kind of hard to almost rip all of them and sit with them. But the trial of Jesus is a stunning and it's a shocking turn of events. Jesus is championed and he's elevated as he comes in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. It's a stark contrast between what's happening in his trial and the jubilation that's before him then. He's, he's like a, it's like a king coming home and the crowd cannot get enough of him and he is the man. But yet in a week, they're crying for him to be crucified. How do we get there? How do they get from Hosanna to crucify? It's almost like the Israelites had this extreme case of never meet your heroes. Have you ever met someone in life who you've looked up to or ever wanted to meet sports star, an actor, um, not sure, your, your favourite hamburger maker, I don't know. And they never quite meet your expectations. And it's a bit, bit disappointing. For some people, it's shattering. I've read some stories about Michael Jordan that make my, just my skin tear. I'm like, oh man, that'd be so harsh to meet like the, one of the greatest sportsmen and go, oof, he was so mean. But it makes sense for the Jews. Let's picture life for them then. The situation is ripe. The exile is a distant memory for them, but it has gathered so much emotional momentum in their collective psyche. It's been centuries since the prophets have uttered anything about a coming Messiah to liberate them. They've experienced almost a hundred years of Roman occupation. So the expectations of a hero are at fever pitch. They're looking for a Messiah to liberate them. They're antagonized on every corner. The history of Israel, if we know it, is one of occupation and freedom. It's like a cycle of slavery and release and crying out to God and, and God coming through. And sometimes it's through not of their own doing, sometimes it is of their own doing. And they just cry out to God when it gets a bit too much, even if they are self-inflicted. They've almost made a habit of projecting their hurts, their wounds, 
their frustrations and shortcomings onto a God that they cry out to. So we look to them now and it's almost as if they want some sort of a Jewish Rambo or action hero to save them. And you could almost imagine Sylvester Stallone dressed as a you know, first century Palestinian, but somehow with a rocket launcher and an assault rifle. However, here comes Jesus. Enter Jesus. Finally, like on Palm Sunday, here he is. He's our hero. He's the one who's going to save us. He's the one who's going to drive the Romans out of town. He's going to establish a Jewish kingdom again, just like with David. However, when we see the story, it doesn't quite go that way. What? He's not here to take them out? What's he talking about? Dying and resurrecting again? And this destruction of the temple? This isn't what we thought. This isn't what we expected. We crowned you king. We hailed you. You need to deliver. We can understand when we look to his betrayal, the motivations of someone like Judas. To me, we kind of see him as a bit of a lone wolf, but I think he does represent a broader dissatisfaction among his people. From the everyday Palestinian to the religious elite, there was expectations that may not have been met and it's frustration that boils over into action. So we had the plot twist. As we've just read, he's arrested. And he's probed by the priesthood who want him gone, but they need some political leverage. So they take him to Pilate. And now we get the showdown that the people wanted. Jesus versus Rome, grudge match of the century. Before we do that, let's set the scene a little bit bit further back to 63 BC. I think you've heard the name Pompey, Pompey Magnus. Pompey the Great, he's known as. In 63 BC, he besieged Jerusalem. And when he does so, he actually enters the Holy of Holies. Could you imagine the outrage? What a first impression to make. If you know the Israelites, that only the high priest can enter that place once a year. And in comes this foreigner strolling in. He actually takes Aristobulus II, who at that time was the king of Judah and the high priest. He takes him back to Rome as a prisoner for a triumphal procession. Now, if you've never heard of a Roman triumph, there's something that they liked the military commanders and later emperors would like to indulge in. Usually after a successful campaign, they would enter Rome and they'd be called king for a day. They'd ride in on a chariot pulled by white horses. They'd be wearing a purple robe. They'd have a laurel crown on their head, face painted red to reflect the god Jupiter. Their captured kings before them on foot, all in their livery to be mocked at. So they make their way to the Capitoline Hill, the centre of Rome, where a ritual sacrifice would take place. Does it sound familiar? So here, back to the trial, we see Jesus face to face with the power and might of Rome, of empire. So how does it play out? Not quite as we thought it could be. Definitely not quite what the uh, Jews thought it would be. 
we see a mixture of perplexity and amazement from Pilate. He constantly probes Jesus about his royalty and his origins. Is he genuinely interested? Perhaps maybe he wants to check his own power about this person who claims to be king of the Jews. Maybe he does sense something otherworldly. It does say that he was afraid. But in particular, he seems extremely incensed by Jesus' silence. Rome can't abide such perceived insolence. This empire is consumed with pride and power that has been amassed over centuries. Then all of a sudden we see this flex from Pilate. You could almost imagine him just towering over the bloodied, bruised, kneeling Jesus and go, don't you realize I have the power? And in the end, the earthly Jesus of Nazareth is crushed and crucified by Rome. This is the tragic outcome of the trial. It's dramatic, it's unjust. We see a crowd fueled by the worst tendencies that humanity have to offer. Did the trial start there? Did it end there? I'm not sure if it started or ended there. I think it started a long time ago and we still see it today. We saw it start in Eden when the serpent asked Adam, did God really? And does it end at Golgotha? The Israelites looked around themselves and they expected Jesus to act in their best interests. Life was really hard then. Could you imagine living under an oppressive regime that makes no attempt to understand your way of life, in fact, mocks it? Life's hard now. I've had pandemics. There's war raging in Europe, Africa, most places you look. The world is unstable. There's anxiety everywhere. People are unfulfilled living lives that they wish they had more meaning and purpose, just chasing the next high, chasing the next experience. And I think just like Israel, it's natural for us to project these expectations that we have on life out. And sometimes it might even be natural to project them on to Jesus. It's almost like the phrase that you hear from Dallas Willard, the God is the divine butler. We take the insecurities and the disappointments and frustrations of life and we project them onto him and we expect him to do something about it. Perhaps sometimes we think of Jesus as a politician or a political activist. Maybe he's Jesus the love guru. Maybe he's Jesus the life coach. Maybe he's the bank of Jesus. Maybe he's Jesus the travel agent. And sometimes he doesn't meet those expectations. The ones that we put on him. Maybe we want a, a fulfilled life. Maybe we thought we'd have more of this or less of that. Maybe we thought the annoying people in our lives weren't going to be around. Maybe we thought we'd have things figured out by now. 
and very subtly begin to put him on trial. We question him and in his role that he plays in our lives. The might of Rome is just pages in history now, or ruins in Europe. I'd like to go on the next plane now that we can go and see it. But I think empire does live on. Not in the sense of grand displays of power and military might and conquest. In here in the lives of, of the West, we, we see empire in a different guise. It's what society says. It's what's all around us. It's the empire of self, empire of Andy, empire of you. The idea that we have all the control, we make all the decisions, we call all the shots. Life is your oyster. Make of it what you can. The choice is yours. You have the power. It's really easy to get swept up in that. I'm sure we all have. I know I have constantly. And fueled by the dissatisfaction sometimes in our lives or even in our relationship with Christ. This notion of having it all, this notion of choosing your life subtly turns into an exercise of power. We, we think we call the shots. And when we want Jesus to act, he's silent, just like in his trial. And just like Pilate, we assume that we have the power and the choice. And just like Pilate, we sometimes might find ourselves staring down at Jesus and going, don't you know I have the power to choose you or not? I don't have to go to church today. I can choose that relationship. I can decide not to uh, invest in my time there. But he's still silent. He doesn't answer us doesn't dignify us with the response that we crave. And it's so easy to get swept up in that. It's so easy and it's not even intentional sometimes when we've been told that we constantly can do what we want when we want. Hey, you do you. It's so easy and it's cruel. How can life warp our perception of our beautiful Jesus, our Lord. It's confusing and chaotic, just like the trial. There's noise everywhere. It's intoxicating. It's impossible to ignore the roars, the shouts. You could probably feel the noise in your body as the crowd is just braying for blood. Where do we turn? What can we do? Well, let's stop for a moment. Let's leave the trial, the aggression, the clamor. Let's just let it fall away. Let's take a breath. We still find Jesus. And he's still stooped over and he's still kneeling. But the scene's different. We're in a garden and we're in Gethsemane 
take a breath and let the tranquility of a garden just surround you and quiet your mind. Because Jesus is here, just like in the trial. He seems to be suffering still, but there's a different power over him. It's cosmic. In the stillness and the coolness of the garden, we start to see clarity. We realize that when we look around life and we see Jesus as he really is, we can learn that we sometimes miss the cosmic forest for the earthly trees, the lives that we wrap ourselves up around so much that we struggle and we clamor for control. We see the almost the smallness of it, almost the futility of it in the face of such power and choice. We understand that the enemy isn't our disappointments and our frustrations. It's not Jesus. Sometimes we like to put ourselves in animosity with him. It's only natural as humans. But here, this is where the true enemy was put on trial. And the true enemy was death. And in Colossians 2, 13, it says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. In true heavenly fashion, we see the upside-down kingdom of God displayed in full force. When we look at it from the perspective of Christ in the garden, making his choice to go and die, his trial and crucifixion become this eternal, triumphal procession over death, almost like a cosmic coronation of, of Christ, our King and our Lord. He is the eternal victor over sin, over death, the things that plague us, the things that cause dissatisfaction and frustration in life. He did away with them. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So here in this Easter, I invite you to please sit with him in the garden. Take the time. We've got four days coming up. See that the eternal effect of the decision he made there and behold cosmic Christ who will rise in triumph, who has dealt with death, is worthy of our adoration, of our praise, of our love. See how he put death to trial and triumph. And the weird way that he processed of his triumph with his trial and crucifixion wearing a purple robe and a crown, walking up to a hill to be sacrificed for us, not for his own mortal glory, for us. And you may not have sat with Jesus for a long time. You may not have sat with him at all. 
or you've been sitting with him for a long time. Regardless, I invite you this Easter to take it all in, broaden your perspective of him, take in a cosmic Christ who loves you enough to come down, be put on trial and die for you. And when we are with him in the garden, it's silent. It's tranquil. And the silence is not infuriating like it was in the trial, but it's fortifying and decisive. It echoes the silence of Jesus' in trial because when we sit here with him, we know why he didn't need to say anything because right here he, he said it all. Not my will, but yours be done.